And so we declare our dependency upon you. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to ask a question. I don't need anybody to answer out loud, but I honestly want you to think about it for a moment. Who are you? And what I mean by that is, how would you define yourself? If somebody were to ask you, you you know, tell me about yourself, what would you use to define who you are? Because the reason I ask that is the way that we answer that question will show a lot about our worldview and particularly will show the values that shape our existence. How you answer that question will reveal the ways that you go about life, the way that you interact with other people, the way that you pursue relationships, the way that you um, feel when you wake up in the morning. All of those kind of things are tied up inextricably to the way that we view ourselves and through the things that we use to define ourselves as individuals. I can give you a good example um, from Scripture. Go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Last weekend, as some of you guys know, we were down in Mexico. There was a group of us and we had the opportunity to go to a men's rehabilitation center. And as we were interacting with these guys, the cool part was when we went in there, there were 13 of us, and I, since I was the pastor, I got to go last and sharing my testimony. So there were 12 other people that got to go ahead of me, and I just got to sit there and, and watch these guys who were sitting here, many of them in their early 20s, all of them who had been tempted by the siren song of drugs in their life and had crashed their lives on the rocks of their addiction. They'd crashed their marriages, crashed their, their families, their careers, and their health. And as they were sitting there listening to these testimonies of people who in a lot of ways had not experienced the depth of despair that many of them had, uh, God placed a story on my heart of another guy who had become so identified with his inner demons that he couldn't see himself as anything else. So in Mark chapter 5, we get a picture of Jesus ministering to somebody who had begun to see himself differently than God had seen him. Jesus typically would do his ministry on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee. But one day... For no apparent reason, really, he takes like a days-long sailboat ride across the Sea of Galilee to the southeastern shore of it, a place that we know as the Decapolis, these ten pagan cities, or, or, or it's known as the region of the Gerasenes. And Jesus gets out of the boat, and he walks up, and the place that he lands is this cemetery. And he comes face-to-face -face with a guy who used to live in the towns around there in one of those ten cities, but he had become demon-possessed. He had become so consumed by his, his possession that, quite honestly, people had tried to somehow subdue him, and they couldn't. And so finally they said, enough with this. We want nothing to do with you. And they'd kicked him out of town, and the only place that he could live was in the cemetery. And so we'll pick up the story in Mark chapter 5, verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure or evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. And this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Apparently, they'd tried to subdue him. They tried to make him submit and be able to be lived with, but they couldn't. And so finally, they just gave up and said, get out of here. Verse 4, for he had been often chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. 
Night and day amongst the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. This guy's internal agony was so great that he literally resorted to cutting in order to feel something, to have some control, or just perhaps to try to purge himself of something that he was feeling. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell at his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What's your name? What I find most fascinating about this story is that this guy doesn't answer what the name his parents gave him. He doesn't answer with any of the nicknames he's accumulated over his life. He answers with his deepest, darkest wounding. He identifies himself with his brokenness. So we read, when Jesus asked him, what is your name? This man answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. This guy didn't see himself as his parents' kid. This guy didn't see himself as a part of a city. He didn't see himself by what he had done. He saw himself as his greatest brokenness. As, uh, uh, he saw himself through his, the eyes of his inner demons. And I wonder how many of us can identify with this guy who called himself Legion. How many of us go through life with this mindset that we are the sum total of what we've done, good or bad. And when we kind of add up the docket, we realize it's a lot more worse than good. And so we become our brokenness. We become our addiction. We become our ailment. You know, if you trail it back through Scripture, you see that this kind of a mindset that we are what we do goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. All the way back to that day when the serpent slithered in and suggested to Adam and Eve, God is holding out on you. He doesn't really have your best interests in mind. This fruit will make you better. And Adam and Eve gave in and they ate the forbidden fruit. And suddenly there was this separation between themselves and God. Suddenly they were ashamed of who they were. They were ashamed of what they had done. They began to cover themselves because they were ashamed to be naked and vulnerable in the sight of one another or in the sight of God. They began to hide from him. And then all throughout man's history, we started to think that we were somehow autonomous from God, that we somehow had to do something to earn our way back into his good graces. Or that we had to somehow prove our worthiness to one another. In a lot of ways, beginning back in Genesis chapter 3, the story of mankind is wrapped up in our efforts, in being good enough, in proving to other people that we are valuable. It's almost as if, and, and this is a, a, an illustration I've used before, but it, for me, it just, this is how I have gone through most of my life. I walk around with a sign around my neck that says, validate me. And I look to anybody and everybody to say I'm okay. But if I want them to validate me, then I need to perform. I need to earn their approval. I need to earn their validation. So Bella, what do you want me to be? I'll be that. And I try to make Bella happy. Lee, what do you want me to be? You're my boss. Who should I be? How should I speak? How should I present myself? I'll do that. Around my friends, I became silly, irreverent Eric. In workplaces, I became 
very serious, stoic Eric. I was almost like a robot. Just, I finished that. What do you want me to do next? No affect on my face. Just serious. I became this caricature of a person. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, I was trying to earn people's validation. Am I not doing well enough? Is this not a good enough sign? Here, wait, I can turn it around. I can make it a lot more shiny. Is that better? (laughs) Tell me who you want me to be. How many of us go through life with a sign around our neck? How many of us are trying to earn people's approval? I know I have spent most of my life under that mindset. I have sought to be good enough. Now, here's the truly dangerous thing about the validate me sign, is it turns us into social chameleons. It turns us into people who change how we dress, how we speak, the values that we carry around, what we do, how we act. It changes our eating habits. Some of us will starve ourselves to earn our validation. It gives an unhealthy, inordinate amount of power to other broken people to define us. Because when I say, tell me I'm okay, validate me, I'm asking them to tell me how I should live, how I should act, what I should do. And it gives broken people the right to define me. And as we wear this sign long enough, we slowly begin to lose touch with who we really are on the inside. We lose touch with our core. And we begin to believe that we are the sum total of our actions. Because after all, if you can't lie to yourself, who can you lie to, right? So we begin to believe our own lies. We begin to believe that we are the facade that we present to the rest of the world on social media and through everything that we do. Our world may be breaking apart at home, but we show up at church with a smiley face on because we're okay. How you doing, brother? I'm good. We don't tell anybody the truth, so nobody can actually come alongside of us because we're terrified that if we even let our guard down for a moment, someone's going to see that we are really not like the Wizard of Oz, as great and powerful as we purport ourselves to be. They'll get a peek behind the curtain, and they'll be disappointed, and they'll reject us. And in a lot of ways, what we do is we sign ourselves up to be hamsters running on a wheel, a wheel of performance, and you're only as good as your last performance. Every single day you wake up and you've got to prove yourself. And every night you go to bed and the, sl- the slate gets wiped clean. You wake up the next day and you've got to start over. Perform, perform, perform. It's exhausting. I can tell you because I've lived way too much of my life with this sign around my neck. But what's the alternative? Last week, I, I, um, I shared about the fact that we are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ, following him, emulating his life, allowing his life to begin to shape how we go through life. So it's fitting that we would look at Jesus' life perhaps as the archetype for how perhaps our life should look and the way that we should view relationships. Go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 6. Because if you take even a cursory glance at Jesus' life through the four Gospels, you begin to see that Jesus 
didn't put a whole lot of stock in how people thought about him. I love Jesus sitting at a a dinner one night. Some woman walks in looking like a, a woman of the night because that's what she was. And she gets down on her hands and knees and begins to weep and wets Jesus' feet with her tears and begins to wipe and wash his feet with her hair. And Jesus allows her to, recognizing that this is, the, this is a worship, an act of worship by a broken woman. And the people who sit next to him, the, the Pharisees, the, the men of respect in the town are looking at Jesus like, are you kidding me that you're allowing this woman to touch your feet? Do you know who this is? But Jesus pays them no heed whatsoever. He doesn't care what they think. Jesus was the kind of guy who would touch lepers and, cl- and cleanse them simply through his touch, regardless of socially what that meant regardless of the fact that it would make him ceremonially unclean. Jesus was the kind of guy who got dirty looks and even had had the, the religious elite talk bad about him because he would eat with sinners and even worse, tax collectors. He didn't care what other people thought. And if there's a chapter that exemplifies that, it's here in John chapter six, the beginning of John chapter six, Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people. He'd been ministering them to them during the day, sharing about the good news of, of, the, uh, of God, the kingdom of heaven and all this kind of stuff. And it's getting to be evening. People are getting hungry. And the disciples are like, maybe we should send them home. He's like, no, you give them something to eat. How are we going to do that? Well, what do we got? Well, we've got a couple of loaves of bread. We've got some fish. That's enough. Have them sit down. He takes these five loaves. He takes these two fish and he feeds over 5,000 people, a, a huge miracle. Started getting people to think about another time that God had provided bread in the wilderness. The time when the Israelites were walking through the wilderness on their way to the promised land and God began to provide every single day their needs. And they began to go, remember how Moses said that one day God would send another prophet just like him, somebody to lead his people, somebody who would speak the words of God to us that kind of messianic figure that we've been waiting for. Maybe Jesus is our guy. And so in John chapter 6, verse 14, we we read that after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world, our Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. I find this fascinating. The people begin to go, perhaps this is the guy we've been waiting for. And in fact, he was the guy they were waiting for, but they had a completely misconstrued understanding of who he was. They expected him to be the conquering king who would throw off the yoke of Rome and reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation in the world. He's going to be our king. So let's make him king by force. Let's get Herod out of here. Let's put him on the throne of Israel. And Jesus knew that this excitement about him was fickle, that the crowd could just as easily shout crucify him as they could shout Hosanna. In fact, that's ultimately what happened. And so he doesn't entrust himself to the crowds. Instead, he just slowly walks away, gathers up his disciples and goes, hey, guys, go get the boat ready. We're going to get out of here. And then he goes up on the mountainside and he begins to pray to God. After a while, he realizes, you know what, we just need to get out of here because the people are beginning to 
politicize this a bit too much. And so he and his disciples get in the boat, and they go to a different part of the lake, begin to go minister to some other people. Well, these crowds who have been left over here, they realize Jesus isn't there. They realize that he's left, and they hear that he's moved down the lake a little ways, so they go chasing after him. When they finally catch up to him, they go, Jesus, why'd you leave? And so Jesus decides to speak directly to their motivations. He goes, guys, you showed up here, and I fed you. You're not showing up here now at this part of the lake because you want to learn more teaching. You're showing up because you want a free meal. You're here for the wrong reasons. Okay? You, you remember God providing manna in the wilderness? Well, guess what? I am the true bread of life that has come down from heaven. And only if you eat of this bread will you truly live. Well, this is confusing to the people, especially because they know Jesus. They know where he's from. They go, don't we know Joseph? Don't we know your mother married? You're the son of a carpenter. You're not from heaven. How can you say you're the bread from heaven that gives life? And at this point, if Jesus had been really interested in building public sentiment, in building a crowd of people who were going to basically help him to conquer Rome, he probably would have stepped back a little bit and softened it, right? Kind of like politicians do when they speak a little bit you know, powerfully about something and then the media goes, oh, I can't believe they said that. And so then they send out somebody to go, what he meant to say was... And then they say the complete opposite of what they actually said. Jesus could have softened what he was saying, but instead he doubles down. He basically goes into the very area that they're going, wait, this is a little bit of strange teaching, and we're not sure we're comfortable with it. And he doubles down and he goes, I am the bread of life. And unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part with me. Okay, Jesus. And so we read... In verse 66 of John chapter 6. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And so Jesus then looks at the, the 12 disciples that he had chosen. He goes, you guys too? Are you going to leave as well? They go, Jesus, where else are we going to go? You're the ones with the words of life. And I can't help but wonder, what is it about Jesus that he could watch as men and women who had been following him, proclaiming his name, saying, you are our leader, you are our rabbi, we want to learn from you, we want to be like you, we want to do anything you want us to do. What would it have been like for him to just watch people walk away and reject him? How is it that Jesus could, could stand here as people are trying to like make him king and go, no, that's not the way to do it. How could Jesus stand by as the religious elite talked badly about him? He eats with sinners and tax collectors. What was it about Jesus that made him so secure that he didn't care about public sentiment, that he didn't care what other people thought about him? Go to Mark chapter 1. I believe that the secret to Jesus' security... The secret to Jesus' ministry, the key to the whole thing, is found in, in a moment that took place at the very inception of his ministry, at the very beginning. 
Jesus shows up uh, at the Jordan River. His cousin has been baptizing people in the river, a, a baptism of repentance of sins. Jesus really doesn't have any sins to repent from, but he shows up anyway. And he wades down into the water, and there's John, who's recognizing that Jesus is the one he's been waiting for. And Jesus says, I want you to baptize me. And John at first, we read in, in, in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist goes, I'm not even fit to untie your sandals. You should baptize me. And Jesus goes, no, I want you to baptize me. I want to publicly declare my devotion and my dependence on the Father. And so we read in verse 9, At this time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. And with you, I am well pleased. Why is this so important? Because at the very outset of Jesus' ministry, before he has healed a single person, before he has fed a single person, before he has taught a single message, he knows who he is. He's God's son. He knows how God feels about him. He loves him. He's proud of him. Just watching him be the man that God has created him to be. God is proud of him. He doesn't need to look to anybody to tell him he's okay. He doesn't need to ask anybody, am I okay? Will you validate me? Because God has already done it. God has already said, you're my son. So don't worry what other people say. Jesus went through his ministry surrounded by a crowd of people who tried to speak into what he was doing, tried to suggest how he could do things better. But apparently Jesus was never performing for them. He was performing for an audience of one, his Father in heaven. He already knew where he stood with God, so he didn't for a moment need to try to prove anything. Which is a good thing, because you remember the very next thing that happens after Jesus is baptized. The Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness for about 40 days of fasting. Doesn't eat a thing, doesn't drink a thing. And at the end of those 40 days, the serpent shows up again, just like he did in the Garden of Eden. And the serpent begins to tempt Jesus, just like he did to Adam and Eve. And one of the ways that the serpent tempts Jesus is by questioning his identity. If you really are the Son of God, then prove it. Here, and he takes him up to the precipice, the, the roof of the temple in Jerusalem, and he says, jump. Because Scripture says, and now I love the fact that, well, I don't love the fact that, but Satan actually quotes Scripture here. Scripture says that the angels will not even allow you to strike a heel against the stone. So jump, because if you really are who God says you are, then no harm will come to you. But Jesus trusts God implicitly. He doesn't need to question whether what God said about him is true or not. And so he doesn't even give Satan's temptation another thought. Instead, he reminds him of another scripture. Because any time... Here's how you can tell if Satan is twisting scripture. 
God will never use a scripture to contradict another part of the Bible. So if you are reading scripture and you get an interpretation that suggests one thing, but it's in complete contradiction to another part of scripture, you can tell that that is probably a misinterpretation of that passage. And Jesus straight up goes, scripture also says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So get away from me, Satan. We're done here. Jesus knew at the outset who he was. He didn't question it for a moment. And because of that, he never once had to step up onto a hamster wheel and perform for other people's approval. He never needed to worry about validation. And because of that, he could minister to the broken in front of him from a pure heart. He didn't need anything from them. He didn't need them to tell him he was okay. And that is genuine freedom. Because imagine, I just want you to think for a moment about how often in your life the things you do, you do because you love somebody, you do because it is your job, but you also do it with a question in the back of your mind. Am I doing a good job? Are you happy with this? Do you approve? Kids, how often are the the reason that we are trying at school is because our parents are going to get a report card? At work, how often do we work harder when we know our boss is in the other room than we are simply by ourselves? Because at the end of the day, we're terrified that they're going to disapprove of something we're doing. So we try really hard when they're there. I even do this with my kids. I try to seek my kids' thumbs-up approval. I try to be the very best father I can be. And there's a part of me that's asking them at the same time, tell me I'm doing a good job. It's probably why I, sometimes I ride Ethan to be really good at sports because I want him to somehow, I can live vicariously through that. I mean, isn't that the brokenness of this like, mindset that somehow our value is determined by how well we do things? That's a product of the fall. So I want to ask you a question. Are you secure in your identity? Perhaps an even more foundational question I need to ask you is, do you even know who you are at all? I can tell you this. You are not defined by what you do. You are not defined by the relationships that you currently hold. Mother, father, son, daughter, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. Those are roles you play But that is not your identity. You are not like the guy that Jesus met in the the tombs in the region of Gerasenes. You are not defined by your failures or by your demons. You are not an addict. That may be something that marks you, but that is not your identity. We know from Scripture That at the end of the day, if we have given our hearts to God, then we are sons and daughters of the living God. You see that there in Romans 8, written in your outlines. That the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God. That is who you are at your core. So when God looks at you, He doesn't see the sum total of your mistakes or your successes. He doesn't define you based upon your merit. 
when he looks at you, he sees his son or his daughter created in his image. And he loves you more than you could ever possibly fathom. And watching you grow into the man and woman that he has created you to be brings him joy. Now, I get that intellectually. But for most of my life, it never traveled those 12 inches from the head to the heart. Part of that is because of the society I've grown up in. We are a society where love is often earned. And it's something we just pick up along the way. It's also something that, although I have an amazing family, I've got wonderful parents. I am grateful that God has given me them as my parents. But even in my family of origin, I picked up this idea that I had to perform for my father's pleasure. I can remember very vividly a time when I was down in Mexico on the sandbar. We were camping. Everybody else was up in the camp. I was down on the beach. I had a football in my hand, and it seemed like a good idea to throw the football into camp because I had a football in my hand. Why not? I know this is going to come as a surprise to many of you, but I was impulsive as a kid, still a part of who I am. May have been hereditary. My boys may have gotten a little bit of that. So I throw the football into camp. And as often happens, it was the greatest throw of my young life because it was a perfect spiral. Aaron Rodgers would have been proud of me. Right into camp, not only into camp, but right onto the table where my father was preparing dinner. Eric! And so I come slinking up to camp with my tail between my legs, and there is my father shaking his head, baked beans all over his shirt. And he says, I will be driving you to college, son. Basically insinuating, you will never be trusted with a car, my impulsive son. And I know he didn't mean anything by that other than he was frustrated that he had just been basically baptized in baked beans, but... USC will take anyone, right? I'm just playing. Not that I could ever afford to go there. Anyway. So I slink up. Thanks, Lee. I'm performing here, okay? So in that moment, I don't know why. You know, isn't it interesting how certain things that people say to us over our lives stick with us, whether positive or negative? Certain things that are said... And you know the person never even remembers having said it. But I remembered. That was one of those things I held on to. Interesting is I look back over my life. It's most often the the critiques, most often the things that insinuate that I'm not good enough that tend to stick. Compliments tend to wash over me like water off a duck's back. It's the critiques that tend to go right to my heart like a rifle bullet. And that was one of those things that penetrated deeply. I'll be driving you to college. Oh, so you're saying that you don't fully trust me. That I am not enough as I am. And in my young mind, I construed that to mean that although my father loved me, I knew that. I never questioned whether my father loved me. I questioned whether he was really proud of me. And thus began, or probably continued, an odyssey of trying to earn my father's approval. I remember as early as the fifth grade, I got in trouble on the, just out on the playground during recess. I was sitting by the principal's office and in my 
brain, I remember very vividly this mantra I was saying to myself, you have to be mature, you have to be mature, you have to be mature. And in my mind, I construed what it meant to be mature as being stoic and a hard worker just like my dad was. I remember in high school, I would read thousand-page biographies of dead guys because my dad would. And I wanted something to be able to talk to him about. Something that he would approve of. I remember when I went to college and I had to choose a major, it wasn't even a thought. Well, I want to be pre-law. Because at the end of the day, I'm going to follow my father into the family business. I want to be an attorney too. Never even questioned whether that's what I really wanted. It was what I figured he wanted. I wanted to make him proud. So much of my young life was shaped by this belief that I had to somehow earn my father's approval. And as I grew... I began to transfer that desire for approval from him onto other people, onto my peers. Well, that's scary when you look to other kids to tell you whether or not you're okay. They're not nearly as edifying and encouraging. I began to look to my teachers. I began to look to mentors. I began to look to bosses. I began to look to the few girlfriends that I had. To tell me I'm okay. Who do I need to be? I became very comfortable with this validate me sign. I became really good at being a social chameleon. And I had absolutely no idea who I was. I knew God loved me. Because at the end of the day, I also transferred that need for approval from my father to my heavenly father. And I began to believe that his love and his approval of me was based upon my performance. And since he saw everything, well, then he's got a whole lot more reasons to be disappointed with me than my own father does. And so I began to try to perform to earn God's approval. Oh, sure, I knew intellectually that he loved me unconditionally. But I simply could not rest in this idea that he loved me, that he was proud of me. In fact, I remember I was a pastor and I was praying over a guy one night during a worship service. And I began to pray this prayer, this blessing that God gives to Jesus in, in the Jordan River. You are God's son. And he loves you just as you are. And I was about to speak the words, and with you he's well pleased, and I stopped. Because I didn't know if he really was. Because I didn't know if he was pleased with me. And it was in that moment that I realized just how deep this sign had permeated into my, my belief system. I thought that God's pleasure in us was derived by our effort and our performance. Even as a pastor, I was on the wheel, and I was running, 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 running. It wasn't until 2008, July 15th, when I held my son Ethan for the very first day, that I finally got God's unconditional love. When I first held that little wrinkly hunk of baby, all he could do was eat, sleep, and soil diapers. And yet, I loved that child more than I'd ever loved anything in this world, including myself. I would have laid down my life in a heartbeat without even thinking for this child and he had done nothing to earn it. And I realized for the first time and that this understanding only grew as the weeks and months progressed 
that this child could never change the way I feel about him. He couldn't earn another iota of my love because he had all of it. He could never lose it because he had done nothing to earn it. And for the first time, I could actually rest in my identity as a son of God. Because for the first time, I realized what unconditional love looks like. Now, Ethan's older. Ethan's a lot like his dad. <laughs> he does a lot of things without thinking. Just last night, I got... <sighs> he and his brother are playing ping, er, pinball over at my parents' house, and, and Grayson is like messing with the thing. So Ethan pushes Grayson's arms, and Grayson falls off a chair onto the ground. And it's like, ah! And of course, the parent in me just wants to... Like, I grab Grace and I just yelled at the top of my voice at Ethan. And it was like you could just see my boy just wither under the intensity of my fear that then masked itself as anger. I go sit down. That was so mean. You're so mean. Words, man. They are so easy to say and so difficult to take back. Yes, we still have to discipline. Because I love him, right? I would not be a good father if I did not discipline my sons. But even in the midst of that, as Ethan is crying, and he's sad, he didn't mean to hurt his brother. He wasn't thinking. I understand. I, more than anybody, understand that. But we still needed to wade through that. And he needed his dad to wade through that. And when all was said and done, when I had been able to cool off, because I was flooded in that moment from fear of watching my little boy fall, I walked over and I sat down. And I go, Ethan, come here. And I get him up on my lap and I hold him. I say, buddy, I know you didn't mean to do that. But that could have really hurt your brother. I know, daddy. And Ethan, you know that regardless of what you do, I love you, don't you? Yeah. Ethan, why do I love you so darn much? And he's learned the answer to it. He goes, because I'm your boy. That's right. Because I don't want my son for a moment to question how his daddy feels about him. I don't want my son for a moment to have to go through life wondering if he's got his father's approval. Because I do not for a moment want to be an impediment to my son wondering how God feels about him. So I'm doing my best, imperfectly, to be a good father to my son. To speak the words that bring life. Because as Proverbs mentions, the tongue has the power of life and death in it. And there are way too many people in this world who will speak words that kill and crush. And way too many of us have been pierced by those rifle bullets to the heart. Many of us have come to believe those things about ourselves. And we're called as sons and daughters of God who have been forgiven of so much to be ones who speak words that bring life and bring hope and healing. And as a parent, man, I want to be a source of encouragement, not a source that beats him down because he's not living up to my expectations of who I wish I had been. I want to continue to fan the flames of who God has created my sons to be, even if that means that they need to work through some of their personality things that are going to, you know, it's going to be hard. I want to walk with him and be a source of encouragement and speak into his life rather than just beat him down for being imperfect, just like the rest of us, just like his dad. 
I find that actually I, I, I'm harder on Ethan about the things that I see in myself, which is probably why I'm harder on Ethan than Grayson, because Ethan and I are very similar. So don't mess with him because he's going to be bigger than you. <laughs> Except for Eric Lowe, of course. All this to say, if it, was, if it is within your power and your children are still alive, do not wait another moment to speak words of life, to speak words of encouragement into their lives. Don't expect that they know how you feel about them. They're not mind readers any more than us husbands are mind readers of our wives, right? Speak words of truth. Speak words of encouragement. Maybe this means that you need to make a phone call and you need to repair some damage that's happened to your relationship. Do it! Because the last thing you want to do is realize that it's too late. And kids, and so all of us have parents. I realized about seven or eight years ago that if my father had died that day, I would never know if he was proud of me. He showed me how he loved me in so many ways. I never questioned it. But he was from a family that was never really all that articulate about their feelings. So he never said those words. And, and I realized it will haunt me if my father dies. And I haven't heard him. I haven't asked him if he's proud of me. So I literally took him out to lunch one day. And I worked up the courage to ask him. And he, and he realized where I was headed. And without even being able to look at me, and so he goes, son, I love you. I'm proud of you. And I'm really glad you're my son, okay? And it was like, even though I knew it was uncomfortable for him, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, awesome, thanks. And the really fun part is, oh my goodness, he's gotten better at it. He has learned. I, amazingly, you can actually teach your parents things. Old dog, totally new trick. And the way that he is affirming with my wife, with my brothers, with myself. It's, I don't even need to ask him anymore. I got a, a, a birthday card last year from him. that It was like, he wrote more than two words. And I hold on to it. It's, you know, most of those things ultimately get circular filed. This is one of those that I'm holding on to because it means something to me. Because I realized that my father was an audience that I was performing for, for better or for worse. And his words matter to me. So parents, please don't withhold the truth of how you feel from your children. Speak words that bring life. But, to change gears just slightly, on a much more important level, there's something we can learn from what God showed me through my son. When he looks at us, he doesn't look at how well we're performing. He doesn't look at what we have done, whether good or bad. His view of us is not determined by our successes or our failures. We are not the sum total of what we have done. We are not our demons. That's not our identity. When he looks at us, he sees us through the eyes of one who has taken upon himself the greatest penalty that we had earned for ourselves. When he looks at us, he sees his son, he sees his daughter, created in his image, whom he loved so much that he was willing to die so that we could be reconciled to him. So may you stop trying to be good enough. 
May you stop trying to earn his approval. You've got it. You've got it. He loves you more than you could ever possibly fathom. If I could love my son unconditionally, and I am a faulty, fallible, selfish human being, imagine how much your father loves you. He created you in his image. Just watching you grow into the man and woman that he has created you to be brings him joy. So stop trying to earn something you already have and just live in it. Stop trying to run and run and run and prove yourself and rest in his love. Because something amazing happens when you can do that. When you can take this validate me sign and just throw it at the foot of the cross and stop carrying it around, then you can stop worrying what everybody else feels about you. And you can love them unconditionally. You can love your spouse and give them grace, even if they're having a problem with you. Oh, easier said than done. But if we could truly rest in God's love, then we could let other people off the hook from having to validate us. We could stop performing and just be who God has made us to be. I'm still working on that. I'm still a work in progress. Yeah. So this morning, we are going to take communion because this is a tangible reminder. This meal that we are about to share is a tangible reminder that we are not defined by what we've done, what we will do, the jobs that we're going to take, the relationships we have, how well we're doing the jobs we've got. We're not defined by what other people say about us. We are defined by a single act of love, an act that reveals just how much our Father in Heaven loves us, just how deeply He loves us. On the night that Jesus was going to be crucified, or He was going to be arrested and ultimately crucified, He was having a meal with His disciples And he took a piece of bread and he said, listen, this bread represents my body that it's going to be broken for you. When you eat of this bread, remember the sacrifice. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this, this cup symbolizes the blood that will be poured out for you. And when you drink this, remember, I love you. We are not defined by what we do. We are defined by what he has done. We are not, when God looks at us, he doesn't see a bunch of sinners, although he could if he chose to. When he looks at us, he sees his sons and his daughters. So what we're going to do this morning, because I suspect that many of us recognize that we have been walking around with a sign around our, set, our neck. We have been asking others to validate us. We have been trying to earn approval from a lot of different places. Many of us are probably exhausted. Some of us have given up and have succumbed to our demons because quite honestly, it's just easier to go that route, to anesthetize, to deaden the pain rather than actually trying to, to sit with the pain. What I want to invite you to do this morning is as you come up to take communion, you're going to be cross, passing these crosses. And I want to invite you to take just a moment 
then symbolically, in your mind's eye, take that sign off and lay it down at the foot of the cross. Stop trying to prove what God has already said about you. Stop trying to be or stop trying to earn what is already yours. So put the sign down and then come and grab the communion elements in just a moment. We're going to share communion together. If I can get a couple of